I'm going to do something I've never done in church before. I'm going to read a psalm. I picked a really short psalm so you don't get abused by this, but I want you to hear it in Hebrew. And so we're going to read the 133rd psalm in Hebrew, and I'm going to read it to you in English, and I'm going to explain it a little bit because it's one of my favorite psalms. So uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, there is no real number system. It's letters equal numbers. And so this is Mizmor Kuf Lamed Gimel. Shir Hamaalot Le David. Hine Matov Umanaim. Shevet Achim Gam Yachad. Kashemen Hatov Al Harosh Yored Al Hazakan Zekan Aharon. She Yored Al Pi Middotav. Keta Hermon She Yored Al Hare Zion. Kisham Tziva Yehova Et Haberacha Hayim Ad Haulam. So in uh, English, the 133rd Psalm reads this way. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And what that means is that uh, they're uh, not just dwelling together, but the term is shevet achim, which means to sit. They're sitting together. They're in unity together. And uh, it's according to the Bible, how good and how pleasant it is. And it goes on to say, it is like the precious oil upon the head, speaking of the anointing oil upon the high priest's head when he's anointed, or the oil upon the new king of Israel as he's anointed as the king. It's like precious oil upon the head that runs down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. So it's the ordination of Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest of Israel, running down on the edge of his garments. And it says, Alpi Middotav, which is literally the lip of his garments. If you think of the garment as a mouth and you get into it, you know, so it's, it's like the same thing as the uh, mouth of the sword. Uh, you know, it, the Hebrew is much more descriptive than the English, but uh, runs down along the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, which is the mountain that if you go to Israel and you stand up in the very north in Dan, you can look into uh, Lebanon and you can see Mount Hermon. And uh, it's got snow on it all year long. And then what happens is during the winter, the uh, snow actually builds up. It's much thicker. Okay. And as the, uh, the uh, spring comes and the uh, uh, snow melts, it comes like the dew of Hermon. It descends upon the mountains of Zion. It rushes down into the Jordan Valley and it fills up the Jordan River. And it descends all the way down and it nourishes all of the land of Israel. They can nowadays pump it out and they can go all over the place. But that's the symbolism you're getting is that this, this oil upon Aaron's head is like the dew descending upon uh, Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. And it is there, not Hermon, but the mountains of Zion, which is a smaller mountain. And yet the Bible always says you're going up when you're going to Jerusalem, always. Regardless of elevation or direction, you're always going up. And that's why these are called Psalms of Ascents. There are 14 of them, and you're ascending. From the first psalm, you're outside of Israel, and you're moving in to Israel. And then you're moving towards Jerusalem, and then you're moving towards the temple, and then you're moving into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. And that's the picture you're getting in these psalms of ascents. But there, there, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And there our Lord died on a cross. So uh, that's some wonderful symbolism from that psalm, and I love to... Uh, love to uh, just think about it every time I read it. One of the most beautiful pieces of literature you could possibly uh, imagine. Our uh, sermon today is Exodus 1. It's verses 15 through 22. What's that? Seven verses? Maybe 8, 15. Anyway, um, uh, 1, 15 through 22. It's entitled, Obeying God Rather Than Man. 
And uh, I've got some points in here that uh, some people may not like a great deal, but I believe that uh, uh, what I have to say is scriptural. It's according to the Bible, and it is something that needs to be said in every church in America. It won't be, but it should be. So um, I'll make my point as we go through the sermon. But uh, Exodus 1, starting in the 15th verse, says this, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Chapter 1 of, chap of the book of Exodus has four major parts to it. The first part is the recapitulation of the names of those who went down to Egypt with Israel. And uh, note that they had multiplied abundantly. We did that last week. This was seen in verses 1 through 7. It was an introductory section and a transition from Genesis to the book of Exodus. After this, there were three sections which deal with the measures to control and to subjugate the people of Israel. The first of them is the transition from Joseph, who was the previous picture, uh, person to picture Christ. And there it begins with these words. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The last of the three is a transition to the story of Moses, who is the next person to picture Christ. In these three sections dealing with controlling Israel, the first is verses 8 through 14. It is seven verses which we looked at last week, which describe the fear of the new Pharaoh at the vast number of the sons of Israel and the way that he treated them in order to subjugate them in hopes of reducing their numbers. That is the first measure of control. The next section also comprises seven verses from 15 to 21. Instead of dealing with the sons of Israel, it deals with the Hebrews' midwives and the children that they delivered. It is the second measure of control. The final portion is verse 22, which deals with the expected treatment of children born to Israel and is addressed to all the people of Egypt. It is the third measure of control. The first and second sets, which are seven verses long, have some very nifty patterns. In the first, the term Israel is used three times. In the next, the term Hebrew is used three times instead of Israel. In the first, God is not mentioned, but in the second, God is mentioned three times. And in the first, it merely notes that there is a new king over Egypt, but the second, it calls him the king of Egypt three times. In each of the three sets of judgment, the term Pharaoh is mentioned once or three times in completion. In all then, in these sets, there is an intentional structure that I had never noticed before until I started doing the sermon. Our eight verses today center on the final two sets of measures used to control the Israelites. Of these two, the first comprises most of what we're going to look at. The last is only one verse, and it's a lead-in to chapter 2 and the life of Moses, the man of God. And we're going to see in a couple more sermons the pictures that he makes of Christ are just astonishing. In the first seven verses, there are some interesting contrasts 
There is the command of Pharaoh, which is set in contrast to the fear of God in the midwives. There is a contrast to what they're told to do. They're told to keep the males alive or kill the males, but spare the females. There is a contrast made between the Hebrew women and the Egyptian women. There is the hope of reducing Israel's numbers, and there is the contrasting statement that they grew very mighty. There is also a contrast between the lives of the two midwives. It's implied that they started with no households, and it's explicitly stated that they were granted households because of their obedience to God, all in seven verses. Like I said, there is intentional order and structure in this first chapter. In the end, these patterns show logic, they show order, and they show harmony. They show intent and purpose, and they are certainly not random. You might ask, well, what importance is of this? But it is patterns such as these which help show us why the Lord does certain things in the course of human history. By seeing these patterns in the Bible, we can see and be reminded that he really is in control. But even without the patterns, the story is one which is intended to direct us towards the unfolding events of time and the promised redemption of Israel that was spoken to Abraham about 400 years earlier. In addition, it shows a pattern which reveals the steadily degenerating morals of a society, which is not unlike how our own society has progressed in recent years. Without exercising our conscience towards God, there can only be ungodliness. Without the fear of the Lord, there will only be enmity towards the people of the Lord. And without respect for human life in all of its aspects, there is the certain truth that the lives of those around us will become of less and less value until only self-centeredness remains. So we have a text verse today from Micah chapter 6. It's the eighth verse and it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord redeemed Israel and gave them his laws to guide them. They were laws which did not merely require mechanical obedience, but they were laws which required a heart for him. In the end, they failed to adhere to this aspect of their instruction. Eventually, there was religion without relationship and a culture of God without caring for God. And because of this, they were judged for their failures. Even without the law of Moses, there is a conscience which is granted to each person so that we should instinctively know right from wrong. Being obedient to our consciences, though, is not sufficient to save us. It's given to show that God is a moral being and that we are obligated to him because he has bestowed upon us his moral nature. The midwives to the Hebrews had a conscience, but they also had commands which were given to them by Pharaoh, which were in direct conflict with their conscience and with the law given to Noah many generations earlier. How would they respond when faced with this moral dilemma? Each of us here, we will from time to time also face moral dilemmas. How we handle them, especially as Christians, defines who we are as individuals. What course of action should we take and why? These are things that are explained to us in God's superior word for our learning and for our growth. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you as I normally do. The first is Shifra and Pua. It's verses 16 and 17. Verse 15 begins with, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Our verses today start off with an immediate problem and one which divides scholars right down the middle. Does the Hebrew say that the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives or to the midwives of the Hebrews? 
Most translations assume that they are Hebrew midwives, but the translation could be either. Flavius Josephus, who's the great compiler of Jewish history, says that they were Egyptians. Verse 15 goes on, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other, Pua. The names of the women don't really help that much with the first problem, as you might think. Many scholars find their names to be Hebrew, but others find Arabic roots for them. Each name is mentioned only once in the Bible, and no other person has an identical name. There is a third possibility that no one else mentions, but which makes sense, and that is that one is an Egyptian and that one is a Hebrew. I kind of thought of that as I was going through this, and I have a reason why. Whatever is correct, there were certainly many midwives, both in Egypt, among the Egyptians and among the Hebrew people, and yet these two are only mentioned, and they are mentioned specifically by name. The reason for mentioning their names is not given, and only in the context of the events of chapter 2 does it make any sense at all as to why their names are even provided. But once we arrive there, we will come to understand exactly why they're mentioned at all, and exactly why their specific names are given. But for now, if for no other reason than because they feared God and worked to save his people, they have been remembered in his word. The name Shifra comes from the word Shafar, which means to be pleasing. The derived feminine noun is Shifra, which means fairness, and so her name is translated as beauty. The name Pua is believed by some to come from the word Iapa, which means to shine or to be beautiful. And so the name is given to be either splendid or light. However, it may also come from another word, pa'a, which is found in Isaiah 42, verse 12, and it says this, I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry, that word pa'a, like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. Because of this, her name would mean one who cries out. What is more likely, I think, is that the name pua is a pun on both words. Together, together, they give us an insight into the person of Moses and his nativity story. We're being told something through the names along with the moral lessons which the Bible is showing us through the story itself. As only these two midwives are mentioned, it could be that they were the chief of the midwives. They may have actually reported directly to Pharaoh concerning the number of births and other statistical information that any working society would collect. And because of this, believing that one is an Egyptian over all the births in Egypt and the other is a Hebrew over all of the births of the Hebrews takes on an interesting possibility. None of the three options are given in the Bible, though, but the logic of this is convincing to me. All right, verse 16. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women. Here the Hebrews are singled out. The orders from Pharaoh are in regards to one group of people and none other. It calls to mind immediately the German Holocaust, the Russian pogroms, and other times in history where the Jews have been singled out. At times, like during the Holocaust, many other groups were also targeted, but the emphasis has been on the extermination of God's people. Satan's reason for this prior to Christ's coming was to thwart God's plans, leading to his ultimate redemption of the people of the world, as was promised right there at the beginning, just after the fall. Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send somebody to do these wonderful things. If the Hebrews were destroyed, then there would be no line for Christ to have come through. Satan's reason for this since Christ is to thwart God's plans for his return for Israel. If Israel is destroyed, then Jesus' words that he spoke to them would have failed. There would be no millennial reign of Christ among his people, and thus God's word would be a failure. 
However, God has continuously used these attempts to actually realize his purposes. Verse 16 continues, and see them on the burstools. This is a very curious set of words. It reads in Hebrew, Yireh iten el ha'abenayim. Literally, it means, and see them on the stones. Because it's so unusual, translations, some of them like Young's literal translation, will simply drop a letter from the word stones and it becomes children. And so it reads this, when you cause the Hebrew women to bear and have looked on the children. Okay. However, this requires changing the wording from Abenaim to Benaim, in other words, from stone to children. The only other time that this term is written in exactly this way, the stones, is used this way in the Bible in Jeremiah 18, verse 3. It says this, Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. At the wheel is literally on the stones. In Jeremiah, it indicates two horizontal stones which are attached to a vertical pole, just the way a modern potter's wheel is made. There are differing views then on what the stones mean. Some think it's merely a way of identifying a type of chair specifically for giving birth, and so, like the New King James Version, it translates it birth stools. Others think that the stones formed a type of bathtub that would receive the child and wash it at the same time. It's a very curious term, but it is not so impossible as to require changing what's been written. Verse 16 continues, If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Throughout the Bible, it is the male father who defines heritage and inclusion into the chosen people. In Leviticus 24, verse 10, a person is charged with blasphemy, and he's identified specifically as the son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian man. In 1 Kings chapter 7, a person is hired for temple work by Solomon, and he is identified as the son of a widow from Naphtali whose father was a man of Tyre. They're singled out in this regard to show that they are not included in the male's genealogy. They could be assimilated into Israel, but their ancestry would be so noted. By killing off the males, the intent was that the culture would diminish twice as fast. There would be no men to continue the line, and the women would be forced to marry outside of the society and thus end their ties with the Hebrew culture. If the hard bondage that was levied upon the men didn't work, it was hoped that this avenue would. Satan would work through human agency in an attempt to destroy the people of God. As Matthew Henry says about these words, the enmity that is in the seed of the serpent, meaning the devil, against the seed of the woman, meaning Christ, makes men forget all pity. Do not keep silent, O God. Please do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God. Let your hand of protection never cease. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. Be not silent, O God. Take away our dread. They have consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us Cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Lord, let our name not end with this generation. Our second thought, obeying God rather than men, which is verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God. Of the 20 versions of the Bible that I look at for each of the sermons I do, none of them translate these words as they're written. And of the many commentaries that I read, None of them explained what is lacking. The title in Hebrew is Ha Elohim. And thus it would say, but the midwives feared the 
God. A definite article is in front of the word God. This makes a very big difference. There were many gods in Egypt, and even Pharaoh was considered a god. But there is one true God. The term Ha Elohim is given for a reason. In Genesis 9 verse 1, God spoke to Noah. At that time, it was understood that there was only one God for all the people because only Noah and his family were alive on the earth. Thus, there were no false gods known to man. When speaking to Noah, God gave him these words of instruction. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. The time of this account in Exodus is around the year 2434 from the creation of the world, which is only 750 years after the flood. And there is still a knowledge of the true God and of his words to Noah. This is what is implied in the term the God. So you can go ahead and pen the in front of that because it's an important identifier for you. It is a gigantic tragedy to me that translators fail to accurately put forth the words of scripture as they've been given. Without this one word, the, in front of God, a polytheist could pick up the Bible and come to a wrong conclusion concerning the word Elohim. In this, translators assume that everybody that is reading their Bible knows what they're thinking. But that's a very bad assumption, especially when folks like the Mormons believe in many gods and that they someday will be their own god in charge of their own little universe. These two women were women of faith, properly directed faith towards the unseen God who spoke to their forefather Noah and gave them a warning concerning murder. Murder meaning abortion. This is exactly what is going on right here, and this is what he has told them to do. And they have a choice. Am I going to commit this vile act, or am I going to stand on the principles? The one command that God gave, don't kill other people. All right? And it's a precept that has not been set aside at any time in human history. Murder is forbidden in all of its precepts. That does not mean killing. The King James Version says, thou shalt not kill, and that's not correct. It's thou shalt not murder. There are times where corporal punishment or capital punishment is mandated. That is not murder. That is killing a person because he has forfeited his life. And as the Lord said himself, by, if you shed blood, by man's blood shall your blood be shed. So therefore, it can't be murder if the Lord has mandated it. And we have to think these issues through clearly, because if not, we end up in a society that has these issues going on that divide the people down the middle. Am I a moral being or am I an immoral being? Where do I place my vote? What do I do? And it's all explained right here in the pages of the Bible. Verse 17 continues, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Francine Clagsburn, she's a Jewish author, notes that this act here may be the first known incident of civil disobedience in recorded human history. In order to save the Hebrew children alive, these two women willingly disobeyed the edict of the king. This precept that following God's laws at the expense of man's laws, which are contrary to his laws, follows all the way through the Bible. Civil disobedience is mandatory when an edict would violate the higher rule and authority of God. In the book of Acts, the high priest, who is the supposed representative for God in Israel, gave a command to the apostles, which was contrary to the truth of God. The exchange is recorded as follows. Did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name, meaning the name of Jesus Christ? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us, which is exactly what they asked for at the time of the crucifixion. Let his blood be on us and on our children, right? 
And it says in verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's from the highest authority in the land of Israel. And yet they were disobedient to that authority because God's law is higher. And so it is to be with us. When we are faced with a choice such as this, we must be disobedient to the government if what they ask us to do would cause us to violate our allegiance to God. These two midwives understood this, and they set an early example, which is not only correct, but which was recorded as worthy of a blessing by the God whom they honored. In their civil disobedience, they upheld the higher authority of God, spoken many centuries earlier to their forefather Noah. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? This verse shows the obvious nature of their disobedience. The reports coming back to the king would have included the live childbirths, along with all of the other statistical information of his kingdom. And my thought is that it was probably the midwives that provided that information. It's unlikely that Pharaoh would have gone down to Goshen to look around, and it's unlikely that anyone would have made a report about live births if it wasn't their job. Instead, the information probably came right to him from these two women. The old expression, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission, parallels this. Eventually, if the king found out of all the live births through someone else, they would have a much poorer argument concerning the matter. But if it were their reports, the confusion of the king would be awaiting their response for a clear defense, something that they would be prepared for in advance, and in fact they were, verse 19. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. This report by the midwives has no need to be disbelieved, either by Pharaoh then or by us now. Throughout cultures where the women work hard, they tend to bear children with much less effort than those who don't. Eskimo women, if you know the old thing about them, in past times they worked almost right up until the time of childbirth. They'd have the child, and in a very short amount of time, they'd go back to work. As the people here were living under hard bondage in unusually difficult conditions, the women would have carried many of the responsibilities that the men were kept from. In all, they would have been just like any other group in such circumstances. And this is certainly so, because if it weren't, then Pharaoh would have had many avenues open to him to find out if it were false. In their words, they are actually turning the hard bondage back on Pharaoh and using it as an excuse. As Adam Clark says, speaking of one of, as if one of the midwives, here's how he paraphrases it. The very oppression under which, through thy cruelty, the Israelites groan, their God has turned to their advantage. They are not only fruitful, but they bring forth with comparatively no trouble. We have scarcely any employment among them. Despite the actions of Shipra and Pua, though, believe it or not, some scholars still chide them for lying. Without thinking this through, they have come to the conclusion that their lying is not justifiable. Here's the Geneva Bible's comments on this. Their disobedience in this was lawful, but their deception is evil. Either way, whether they told the truth or whether they didn't, that is a bad analysis. The law of God at that time for all of the people of the world, and the only law that existed, was the preservation of life. The Ten Commandments, which include thou shalt not lie, had not yet been instituted, and therefore they were fulfilling the higher calling apart from the law. Their actions are justified, and they are noted as such. We ought to obey God rather than men. Certainly, this is our highest duty to uphold. God's favor is the sweetest reward, I say again. His favor is worth more than the most precious gold. What can man do to me, I ask? In whom shall I place my fear? 
being faithful and true to God is my solemn task all the days that the Lord keeps me here. To Christ I will be faithful as long as I live, as I await that final heavenly call, when in that day to me eternal rewards he shall give, because in this life Jesus has been my all in all. Our third thought today, that which has been will be. It's verses 20 through 22. Verse 20 says, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, with bold determination, even in the face of probable danger and possibly death. The actions of these two women speak for themselves as evidenced by God's treatment of them. He was pleased with their actions, and the Bible notes that for their faithfulness, he dealt well with them. Interestingly, in this verse, the term Elohim, not Ha Elohim, is used. They feared the God, and God, who is the God, responded with favor. Because it is understood that this favor is from the God, there's no need for a definite article. It just simply says God. Verse 20 continues, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. In verse 7, it said, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. The same words, multiplied and grew very mighty, are repeated to show the effect of both of Pharaoh's attempts to diminish the people of Israel were turned around instead to increase them. This type of irony is seen many, many times in the Bible. When Joseph's brothers meant harm for him, what did God do? He turned it around for good. In the book of Esther, when Haman tried to destroy God's people, we're told that the wicked plot that he devised against the Jews was returned right back on his own head. In the greatest of such moments, the people of Israel plotted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. But in his case, the old saying is, you can't keep a good man down. It rang true. What they did by taking his life led to the greatest multiplication of life in human history. The spiritually dead have been quickened into such a great multitude that the Apostle John actually says that it can't be numbered. The use of such descriptive terms shows the magnificence of God's accomplishments in contradistinction to the futility of the plans and the schemes of man. Verse 21, And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. Again, in this verse, the translation is lacking. It says once again, Ha Elohim, the God, because the midwives feared the God. Again, he is set in contradistinction to the false gods of Egypt and of those of Pharaoh. What was implicit and understood in the previous verse allowed for no definite article. But in this verse, we are being shown an explicit distinction between those gods of Egypt and the true God. Thus, there is a need once again for the definite article. Pharaoh himself was considered a living God, and so the article makes it all the more poignant. The words of the 56th Psalm are prefigured in the actions of these two wonderful women. Here's what it says there. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In their fear of the true God, we are told that he looked with favor upon them and he provided households for them. In the Hebrew, the word for them, though, is masculine. It's not feminine. And so some people, if you read commentaries, will claim that it's referring to the people of Israel and not the midwives. But the term households is a proverbial expression. It means that they married and they became mothers in Israel. This is similar to what happened at the end of the book of Ruth, where the people blessed the union between Boaz and Ruth. There, after Boaz accepted the right to marry Ruth, it said these words, The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, 
the two who built up the house of Israel, and there it's masculine. And may you prosper in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. woman this young woman. In this section of Ruth, the masculine word is speaking of the whole household. Through their fear of the true God, they were built up into a house of their own. Though they are never mentioned again in the pages of Scripture outside of the passage we're looking at today, they are included among the faithful nonetheless. And our final verse today is verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. The Geneva Bible says this, When tyrants can't prevail by deceit, they burst into open rage. Let none of us deem that this is either an untrue verse because of its horrible consideration, nor should we even think for a moment that this is either unusual in our own nation or something that is unlikely to occur in our own lifetime. In fact, it is the anticipation of a large portion of our society today. In the logical progression of wickedness which permeates the world in which we live, we see an edict which mirrors the thought process of our own leadership in America. First, Pharaoh tried to work the people into a decrease in numbers. When the women were overtaxed, he figured that they would abort their babies. It didn't happen. Instead, they multiplied. And so the next logical course of action was partial birth abortion. Kill them as they're being born. This is something that's de desired by the left in the United States and a procedure which is often argued by them as necessary. Even in the halls of the Senate and the House of Representatives, they say we must have this procedure. When the midwives realized the immensely grotesque nature of this, they upheld the law of God and they refused to be a part of it. And so now Pharaoh demands that any male child born alive is to be taken to the river and cast in as if it's a rotten tomato or maybe a spoiled piece of beef. In recorded hearings on the issue of terminating live babies outside of the womb, outside of the womb, already born alive, our current president, while still a senator in Illinois, can be heard calling these babies fetuses and that they had not yet reached the age of viability. In other words, they are not worthy of constitutional protection. These are right on YouTube. You don't have to trust me. You can go online and just type it in and you'll be able to listen to him anytime you wish. His voting record on this issue shows on three separate occasions, just like the three attempts to destroy the people of God in Exodus, on three separate occasions, he voted to keep infanticide legal. Since the passing of Obamacare, and you're not going to believe this unless you go watch this, his supporters can be seen on a video published right on YouTube signing petitions to make it legal to kill children up to three years old in order to relieve the burden to deal with the children themselves or to help keep the population down. One of the signers, you're not going to believe it, he's standing there with his own child in his arms, little baby, signing the petition which was intended to support infanticide for small children. Although this is a sermon concerning Pharaoh's actions towards Israel, the passage itself is an indictment on the sheer depravity and wickedness of those who are willing to attack God's image bearers because of their hatred of God. This is Pharaoh. And the memory of his wicked actions are recorded to remind us of our own obligations concerning the sanctity of human life. In order to destroy an entire population of people and end a culture which was given to bring restoration between God and man, Pharaoh demanded the lives of the males and the destruction of the females' inheritance among the people. 
Having said this and seen this, before we finish, I want to show you an interesting parallel, which is found in the book of Numbers. This Exodus account, now remember this, this Exodus account is just before the coming of Moses. In Numbers, just before the death of Moses, an account occurs which is almost parallel to what we see today. I'm going to read it to you. It's 18 verses. It's going to take a minute. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. After you, afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to the war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to the war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hor, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captain with their little ones, meaning all the children, and took as spoil their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt, and all their forts. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Then they brought the captives, the booty, and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho. And Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was very angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, listen, kill every male among the little ones, exactly what we saw, and kill every woman who has known a man intimately, but keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately." After giving this instruction, the Bible records that there were 32,000 women who had not known a man intimately. What does this mean? Assuming that there were an equal number of boys as there were girls, Israel exterminated at least 32,000 boys and all of the grown women. In all, probably more than 100,000 people died that day. An entire population was destroyed in this manner, and the virgin women were assimilated into Israel. One must question why this was acceptable, and yet the same wasn't concerning Pharaoh's actions towards Israel. The answer comes down to one simple precept in that definite article, obedience to the God. The two midwives understood this. They served the God. Midian, however, was ripe for judgment for having rejected the God. In our nation, we're following the same path, and we're set for the same judgment the deaths of more than 50 million innocent lives cannot go unpunished by this same God who watches over the affairs of men. It is a lesson that must not go unheeded lest we perish. On this seemingly depressing note, we close for today, but in reality, there is nothing depressing about God's word nor his love for us. It is we who turn our backs on him as he continuously reaches out his hand to us in love. Even in our lives, our abortions, our drunkenness, 
or our addictions. He is willing to forgive all, and he is willing to forget all if we will simply turn to him. And remember, those girls got grace. They were, became a part of the covenant people. So even in God's judgment, there is grace and there is mercy. And so not knowing whether you've actually called on the Lord Jesus Christ or not, I'd like you to give me just one more moment to tell you how you can come to him and to know him as I share to you the good news of Jesus Christ. All of these stories in the Bible, some are very hard to stomach. All of them are intended to show us that God has a plan and he has a purpose and he is doing it through a select group of people until the coming of his son. And when his son came, he fulfilled all of those pictures and all of those types that are shown in the Old Testament pointing to him. He came under the law. So he was uh, there to fulfill that law that the people of Israel couldn't fulfill it. But if he was born with Adam's inherited sin nature, he couldn't have done it. Instead, God himself is his father, and so he was born without Adam's sin. So he was qualified under the law. Now he has to fulfill the law, and that's what the gospel records are for, is to show that he perfectly obeyed God's law. He fulfilled it without sinning. So he was born without sin, and he lived without sin. And then he willingly gave his own life up in exchange for our sins. The things that we've done wrong throughout our lives are all nailed to the cross if we will simply accept the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way to be reconciled to God except through him. He says that with his own mouth in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And it is a voluntary choice. Some people never have that voluntary choice. They were born at a time or in a uh, place that it wasn't allowed. But we have that gracious offer of God that we can call on Jesus Christ and we can be forgiven of his sins. Through the hard, difficult passages of the Bible, there is the continuing note that God must judge sin, that he must judge wickedness in man, and yet he loves us enough to put aside that sin. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. So all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the wonderful message of the Bible. So if you've never done it, I would ask that today you would say, I'm going to do it and I'm going to live for him. I'm not going to go the wicked way and do these things that are contrary to his word, but I'm going to learn his word and I'm going to be obedient to it all the days of my life. Our closing verse today comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the 37th verse and it says, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That would be my prayer for this nation today. Lord, turn our hearts back to you once again. Next week is Exodus 2. It's verses 1 through 10. 10 full verses. It'll take a while to get through. This is one of the Hebrews' children, it's entitled. That'll be our third Exodus sermon. I'll tell you as I do each week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And I have a poem based on today's verses. It's the same as uh, same title as the sermon today, Obeying God Rather Than Men. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives words of shame, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the other Pua was her name. And he said, why do you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women as I instruct you and see them on the birth stools? This is something I want you to do. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. No mercy give. But if it is a daughter, then she shall be allowed to live. But the midwives feared God and took a stand and did not do what he said to them. 
as the king of Egypt did command, but saved alive the male children. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved alive the male children? And the midwives to Pharaoh said, Because the Hebrew women, as we say, are not like Egyptian women, but instead they are lively and give birth right away. Before the midwives come to them, and so they have already had their children. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, it is true, and the people multiplied and very mightily grew. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them, a reward for their faithful walk in which they trod. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall into the river cast, and every daughter you shall save alive, and we will be free of these Hebrews at last. Such is the nature of man's enmity with God, how we fight against his plans and purposes for us. On a wicked path we would gladly trod and turn our backs to his gift of love, his own son, Jesus. But until our last breath, he continues to call because of his great and undying love for us. And in one act, he can reverse in us the fall just by receiving that great gift of love, his own son, Jesus. Thank you for patiently waiting even for me, O Lord. Thank you for patiently waiting for each one of us until the day when someone showed us in your word about the marvelous gift of love, your own son, Jesus. Praises to you for this, our matchless king, for all eternity, our souls to you will sing. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of scripture which show us why you work as you do. And thank you that we live in a time where we can be bestowed your grace and we can be reconciled to you. And though many of these lessons are hard, they're hard for us to assimilate and to process, we know that there is a God out there who loves us enough to send Jesus Christ to reconcile us to him. Thank you for that. We do praise you, the God, the one and only God. And we thank you for the avenue you've given us through his shed blood. So we'll be sure to thank you and praise you all the days of our lives. And we'll do so in his name. Amen.